Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to a special bonus conversation. By now, frequent listeners of this podcast have surmised one thing. Plenty of people know who the F. Roger Smith is. It's a prestigious list, and one name on it is the author John Barron. They recently sat down for a conversation to talk about old times, Barron's novel Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, the Clint Eastwood film that followed, and Barron's next project. We begin where you park your car, near Harvard Yard. I have known John Barron for well over 50 years. I was an undergraduate at Harvard when he had graduated about two years before me, and he had achieved what was considered in those days an exalted position as a junior editor at Esquire. Probably for a Harvard graduate in the 60s, the only thing that might have been better was an editorial job at, at the New Yorker, but Esquire was right there. Anyway, John had achieved the closest thing to big man on campus status at Harvard, which definitely did not like that concept, but he was one of the top people at the Lampoon. And if you, in those days, maybe it's no longer true, if you could be witty, you were a champ. So anyway, John, the world knows, wrote one of the most all-time successful, best-selling nonfiction books, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. I rarely meet anybody when I mention his name who doesn't, hasn't, doesn't say, oh, I read the book and I loved it. And many people, however, know it from the movie that Clint Eastwood made of it. And to John's great happiness, most people say the movie wasn't a patch on the book. And so it's my pleasure to have my friend of 55 years here to uh, discuss his history as a, an author of an amazing book. He wrote a subsequent book, The City of Falling Angels, about Venice, which was wonderful for anyone who knows and loves Venice, which is anybody with, with good taste. Well, I want to start out by telling a story that has never been told because John is too much of a gentleman. This story reflects badly on a famous name in the New York literary world, and he has been very careful not to put it out publicly. But I don't have the same sensitivity, and I think I'm going to propose to him that the statute of limitations of 30-plus years since this happened makes it okay to say it. John's agent was the very, very highly regarded Lynn Nesbitt, one of the top agents who had recently hooked up with Mort Janklo in Nesbitt and Janklo, and she had tracking his progress as he spent six, seven years, was it? Seven. Seven years writing the book while he 
buried himself in Savannah, Georgia, to know the local lore and the history. And when he finally felt it was ready to be sent off to his agent, she called him and said, John, this is a very local story, and I'm not sure I can sell it to a publisher. What she was doing, I think, was proving the dictum that was made famous by Bill Goldman, the screenwriter, nobody knows anything. And I think that that is the view of creative people about the people they, technically speaking, work for, studio bosses, publishing, editors, agents, people like that, who are not themselves capable of doing, and I include myself in that group as a former studio executive, I would never be able to write such a book. And I have the greatest admiration for John, and as well, so in, in addition to friendship. And so I would like to know if it's all, if I have your permission to reveal that Lynn Nesbitt has. I was going to say, you can name the person, but I have to leave the room to do. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. John has just left the room, everybody. And he's, he knows that I don't have his fine sensitivities about frequently getting in trouble with my big mouth. But John, I want you to talk about the experience of writing a book that was on the bestseller list for over four years and how you both worked to market the book and promote it and what it felt like to become, of your generation, one of the most admired and respected uh, writers. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that book took me seven years to write. And I had a ball for all seven years. A book is successful probably if you enjoy writing it, whether it's a tragedy, comedy, or whatever. But I absolutely loved Savannah. I loved the characters I was meeting. I loved being able to put it down in prose style. And it was a process that never went sour for me. I don't know if every writer has that experience. Probably not. But the reason the book I think has been the successful as it has been is, is that it was a delight and pleasure for me to work on. And I have to say that I was, I seemed to my to myself, seemed able to achieve the effects that I was after. Humor, I wanted to capture the beauty and the, and the seductive qualities of this wonderful town, town of Savannah, which by the way, was not very well known in this country. They'd heard the name, but they had no idea what Savannah looked like, uh, what the people were like. And Savannah is a ravishingly beautiful set, like a stage set. And I was able to, I, all of that was great for a book. And I knew it would be new to everybody who read the book. So I guess the secret of, of this is that you should enjoy what you're doing. It's not always possible, but uh, it was for this one project. And the only bump on the road was that agent who said, it's too local, uh, I can't, in this market, she said, uh, it'd be very hard to find a publisher. Well, you know, my friends were all uh, surprised that I wasn't upset or depressed about this because I knew she was wrong. I knew it, it would find a publisher. I had confidence in the book. I didn't know it would be a bestseller. I, in fact, I was asked, do you think you've written a bestseller? And I said, are you crazy? Look what's in the book. Uh, you know, a, a drag queen, it's a major character. A murder of a uh, hustler. All kinds of things that are not typical factors of uh, bestsellers. You had had this incredible impact on Savannah 
that you introduced the world that knew it as a name, but in Savannah, John is looked on as the person who put the place on the map and indeed has had a, a major economic effect as well as a cultural effect on Savannah. You have to believe that what I say is an out-of-body experience. It's not happening to me. I, I keep saying to myself, it's happening to you, fool. But it's very hard to accept that reality. But I never have fought with it, I just don't. And I know what people mean when they say out-of-body uh, experience. I knew that it was uh, a success almost immediately because um, Random House was hopping all over the place with joyful hoops and hollers, and also the sales went through the roof right away. Part of that was because Random House had set up a publicity scheme schedule that was genius. They were wonderful at marketing books. This doesn't happen much anymore. They they sent me to a, a on a tour of cities to visit bookstores where I'd do readings and signings. I had to visit um, television stations, radio stations, interview by local newspapers, a full schedule of all of that. And the great thing was at that time there were people known as literary escorts. So your publisher would send you to let's say Cleveland and the literary escort lived in Cleveland and knew every single outlet that you had to go to. It wasn't that I was told, here's a list of people you got to see in newspapers, and, and here's your ticket to, to Cleveland. No, I get there, be welcomed by the, by, the, by the expert on Cleveland, who would take it, bing, 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 bing. We didn't waste a moment, and so of course Random House got the, a bang for the buck, because I was on my, moving from place to place and being interviewed and photographed and all of that. It was, and, and also that was a happy experience. It was getting very good reviews. I was feeling very good about it. And, uh, but, but part of the marketing, you have to understand, is not available today. The publishers don't have the money to send uh, uh, writers on a tour. Well, and at least they say they don't have the money. Well, they don't have it. Yeah. Well, well, what happened was, midway through the first year, from, toward the end of the first year, somebody counted up how many cities, I've been 58 cities. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's a self-perpetuating thing. Also, if you, I mean, I'm jumping ahead, but people ask me, why is that the book sell so well? Well, there's certain built-in factors that I hadn't even realized. It's a travel book. And every single newspaper seized on that and did articles. New York Times did it twice the first year. Philadelphia Inquirer did it twice. Articles about Savannah. About Savannah, and of course, in the first paragraph or two, Midnight in the Garden, right. yeah. yeah. and we're talking Washington Post, you name it, all of the major newspapers, plus other ones I never heard of. And that, that's a local paper, doing that more than once in the first year. And there's huge value for publishers and for authors too. Well, John, you have reported an unusual experience for a writer, which is enjoying the process. Most of them talk about the misery of being shut up alone in a room, whereas you were out of, out of the city, soaking in the, the unique culture and the great food of Savannah, too. Well, and it was just, Savannah is, is, a, is a very odd, gorgeous city. It has uh, an ambiance that's unlike any other. And also there's a, a local sense of humor that's ironic. And it, it's hard to pinpoint it, but the friends that I made, and I made them into characters too, 
were, were joyful to be with. I mean, it really was an experience that I don't think I could duplicate, but that's why that all worked very well, I think. Well, you subsequently, many years later, spent quite a long time in New Orleans. How would you compare the two? New Orleans is a marvelous city. It also has wonderful characters, but it's very conscious of itself. It, it, it promotes its weirdness. Savannah had no idea how cockamamie it seemed to be. <laughs> it was, you know, it, it's homespun. They had no idea. So that was part of the charm of the place. That's very, that's a very, charm. very interesting distinction because New Orleans is a, a uh, place that I know very well, but I don't know Savannah, but I can understand what you say. Would you say that um, what you wrote, it was a pleasure to write the book, and you make it sound like it was pretty much a pleasure to go out and promote it, which most authors regard as drudgery or misery, one of the two. You're, you have a different view. A great factor in the, for this book and its success is luck. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Luck. I'll tell you something. The first week or two weeks that I went on, on the road, uh, according to Random House's schedule, there were blizzards all over the Northeast. And I kept hearing that this writer or that writer couldn't appear on the Today Show because they couldn't get there. I didn't miss a single promotional activity. I was on national TV while I was in Alabama, you know, the South, Texas, Washington. There were no, there were no blizzards where I was. <laughs> Everyone in the Northeast, blizzards like crazy. And there, so, so many book uh, authors were stranded. Couldn't make the chance. I have to point this out because it's very, what you said just struck me at this moment. Many, I know many, many people who are on what I would call both sides of the creative process, the actual creators and the executives, uh, agents, uh, editors, etc., who work with them. And generally speaking, success is rarely mentioned word luck. And it is a tribute to your just innate decency and, and honesty that you credit part of this to luck. I think that's probably being overly modest, but there is certainly, it's an element. I tend to say that we failures are usually more eloquent about luck. Well, I appreciate all of those compliments, but also I'm a reporter. And part of the reporting of this book is the luck aspect. So that's what I had to bring it in because otherwise it'd be false reporting. Do you feel that the current position of the publishing industry with shrunken budgets, 
lack of uh, promotion. I mean, my brother-in-law wrote a brilliant book called Eleanor, a biography of Eleanor, Eleanor Roosevelt. It came out in the middle of COVID, but uh, Simon Schuster did nothing to help him promote it. That's terrible. Yeah. Uh, and you hear stories like that often. I lucked out again because Random House was the best publisher around. And they treated this like you know, their, their favorite yeah. child. Well, I just read, as many people did, the obituary for the great Robert Gottlieb, yes. who was an editor who worked with authors. I don't sense from you that you had at Random House an editor who worked with you on the, on the book. I would have if I needed one. I gave them a finished book. And Anne Goddard was my editor. I just grabbed it. She loved it. And the one thing she said was, that chapter begins too slowly. And she was right, so I fixed it. That's all. That's the only thing that she pointed out. Well, the fact that, uh, that you gave them a finished book, I would say most authors think they gave the publisher a finished book. But well, the publisher doesn't agree. What my agent, the agent I got after Lynn Nesbitt, uh, Suzanne Gluck, who's wonderful, she said, oh, we find that books we get from editors who've written the book are much cleaner than books we get from writers. So I was editor and writer, or writer and editor of my own that's, that's very interesting. Um, do you think that, uh, well, you, you obviously totally overcame the, what it might have been for some people, the destructive experience of your editor, for your agent, sorry, for years, uh, regarding it as unpublishable, but, or unsaleable, uh, perhaps is more accurate, but do you think that the subsequent success. I mean, at what point did you realize that this thing was a massive bestseller? Six weeks, eight weeks after? Well, it had the bestseller. Well, of course, they know the best, what's on the bestseller list about two weeks before it's in the paper. A month in, it hit the bestseller list at number five. And of course, from then on, and I always thought it's going to fall off, it's going to disappear. And uh, of course, I was sure that it would end any time, any moment. I didn't want it to. But it was a month into it that, uh, it, as I said, it hit the bestsellers and it stayed there. And how long do you recall offhand that it stay at number one? Ten weeks. Ten weeks, yeah, okay. That, that I had is, to dredge my memory for that one, did you? Right, yeah. <laughs> well, the people who know, and I, I know the book publishing industry indirectly because uh, when I was at Warner, they had a book division and I worked with them closely. But it is cr quite a impressive fact to stay 10 weeks to stay at number one, let alone four plus years on the bestseller list at all. This was amazing. It was at number two, three, and four many weeks. It took a while to get to number one, but it did get to number one. Would you say, based on this experience, now your second book, you went to Venice, right. and I said to you at the time, don't expect to do for Venice what you did for Savannah. It's already been done for Venice. It, it, too late for that. <laughs> didn't need right. it. Right. Well, Gates Talese said, judging by what your success in the first book, don't write a second book. They'll tear you apart. The critics will lacerate you. They won't, they, they don't, they're jealous at your success. And so. But, the, but they didn't. They were. They, they didn't. A few did. A, a few, a few damned it with faint praises, if I recall. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Um, well, it's a, one, it's a wonderful book and has a great story. John, John made a very important point that I think. He's a reporter as well as a writer. He, so he 
brings the tools that fiction writers bring to fiction and that reporters bring to facts and puts them together. The story in Venice is a complicated, fascinating history. Um, and while the book was, was quite successful, nothing could match. Nothing I, will, I will make a statement here that I have made before. I love Midnight. I love everything about it. I did everything I wanted to do. It was successful. In some ways, not always, The City of Falling Angels about Venice is a better book. I had refined certain techniques, and so I'm pleased with it as well. It didn't do as well, but it was on my bestseller list for um, something like six months. Yeah, what would you say that a fire is less dramatic than a gay murder? <laughs> yeah, I didn't actually try it. Yeah, the, yes, the fire. Uh, but and the characters are just wonderful in Venice. They were, I mean, they were all you could ask for. But the next book I was going to write was about New Orleans, and it didn't click for me. New Orleans, there were great stories in it, and I have more notes from the New Orleans period of time. In the aftermath of Katrina, yes? Yes. It wasn't, nothing was done for what I was going to do. I mean, it wasn't, no one beat me to the punch for this or that angle of the story. But it, I didn't catch fire, and, as I did in the first two books. I'm going to ask you a question that I think I know the answer to, but are you contemplating one more book? Yes. Contemplating doesn't mean I'm going to do it, but I'm able to write, still write. I very well might write. Well, you wrote some children's books, is that right? Or a children's book. A children's book. And that was a fun experience? It was lots of fun. It took me about an hour to write. <laughs> Because what happens is, I was taking, I have a, you know, with, with iPhones, you can take sumptuous photographs. I was in my office in my townhouse, and I looked out, and there's a sort of false balcony, and I saw that some blue jays had built a nest in the corner of that little balconyette. So I got my camera, and I took pictures, and it was the, the mother and the father, a husband and the wife were making a little nest. And I, I followed the, their progress. And then before I knew it, there was a nest. And then there were eggs. And my mama was sitting on the eggs. And I took pictures of every stage. And then the, the eggs hatched. And then we started hopping around on this little thing in front of my uh, office. And, and one of them was jumping up. They had to jump off a second floor balcony. And then flood their arms and go out full out of the ground. And I got all of that. And then they hopped, had to hop up steps to the sidewalk and hop across the sidewalk to the tree garden, which would save them from being stepped on. And I, I took uh, pictures. It was a story of this whole story of the nest being built. And I showed it to my agent. And she says, they're going to make a book out of this. And so she took it to to my editor at Random House, who said, no one else is going to publish this book, just us. No one let anybody else get a grab a book by John. And it was published by, um, it's Random House, Penguin Random House. Penguin Random House, yeah. There was, they have a children's division that published it. Very nice. Used my photographs. They could have called it Penguin Blue Jay. Right. <laughs> but anyway, that was a totally successful thing. And it sold something like uh, 600,000 copies. The reason it did was it was picked up by Dolly Parton. And she has something called the Imagination Library. I believe that's the 
and she promotes books for children four to seven years old. Well, you start with four and you go all the way to seven, and for three years, the, my, my baby Blue Jays sold through the bookstores because she had uh, promoted it. Can I ask you a question? I think the moral of the story, John, is have a townhouse. <laughs> yeah, it pays off. Yeah, I mean, she, she's marvelous. She really is. Oh, she's a national treasure. Yeah, she is. I say, I met her once. She was, I was in the Universal Pictures commissary, and I was taking my then girlfriend and her three children, ages seven to ten, and uh, to lunch. And at one point, one of them goes, "Oh, look, that's Dolly Parton." And the mother says to the children, "We don't disturb people. We don't go up to do." And there she's having lunch, leaving. All of a sudden, I hear, "You send those darling children right over here now!" <laughs> and all three of them clambered onto her generous size lap and it was just adorable so any anything that you've read about Dolly Parton in my very very minimal experience is 100% true. John thank you for taking the time and thank you for being my friend for 55 years without getting annoyed with me um, except on rare occasions. Rare. Okay. <laughs> hey it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50 Year Old White Guys the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast Networks include Ruby for Female Empowerment, The Best Business Network, and GPN for Geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Electric acid.